So, Hare Krishna. Um, Hare Krishna. Welcome to our Sunday Bhagavatam class. Uh, today we begin with text 1, 16, 25. Canto 1, chapter 16, text 25. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So this verse is Dhananyuvacha, the earth said, or the mother earth said, Bhavan Hiveda Tatsarvam, that you indeed know all of this. Janmang Dharmanu Prachasi. All this that about which you have inquired for me, all the things that you asked of me, you actually know the answer yourself. That's the first thing she says. Of course, what she asked about was uh what Dharma, the bull asked about was Tavadi Mulam, um, the actual cause of your um, suffering, of your trouble. Why are you suffering? So, Bhavanhi Veda Tatsarvang, you indeed know all of this. Janmang Dharmanu Prichasi, that about which you are asking me. Chaturvi Vartase. Jaina, you also function, you also exist by the four, padair, by the four legs. So here, pada, or uh, chaturvir padair, by the four legs or feet, it, it's what we would say in English, four pillars. Of course, this is a, a um, an allegory in which dharma is has taken the form of a bull. So the, these four legs, are in a sense the four pillars of human society, uh, loka, sukha, avahai, which avahai, which bring uh, or increase the world's happiness. These are the things that bring happiness to the world. These four things. So now we're going to get a in, in through this allegorical story. We're going to get an analysis of how societies can be happy and why they are unhappy. So this is especially relevant in Kali Yuga when people are obviously extremely unhappy. Most people, I mean, very few people can say, that, yeah, I have a great life. I love the way the world is today. Hardly anyone says that nowadays. So then in the next verses, we get... Um, get a list of qualities in uh, three get a list of qualities we have five verses together here 116 26 to 30 so let's just go through this list and see what the earth says so first we get these list of, of desirable qualities satyam truth or honesty shocham Cleanliness, also what we would call decency in character and mind. So satyam, shocham, daya, mercy, kshantis, forgiveness, tyaga, uh, renunciation, giving up things that are not appropriate, santosha, being satisfied, arjavam, literally straightforwardness or honesty, shama, Peace, dhamma, sense control, controlling yourself, tapak, austerity, samyam, tranquility, titiksha, tolerance, uparati, detachment, shutam, 
education, especially spiritual education, jnanam, knowledge, virakti, detachment, aishwarya. Let's see how Prabhupada translates aishwarya. It would be interesting. Uh, the word aishwarya, of course, comes from the word ishwara, the Lord. So aishwarya literally means sort of like lordship. And then it also comes to mean derivatively opulence. So here Prabhupada says, translates it more literally, uh, leadership, leadership from the word Ishwara, Aishwaryam. Leadership. Mardavam. Uh, <clears throat> Shoryam. Whoops, did I skip one or did this database skip one? Um, no, shorium means uh, being heroic or, uh, let's see how Prabhupada translates uh, shorium. Uh, leadership, shorium, chivalry, great translation. Chivalry, from the word shura, a hero. And so shoryam, sort of heroicness or chivalry. So Aishwaryam, leadership, shoryam, chivalry, tejak, power, influence, Prabhupada says, balam, to render possible that which is impossible. Of course, bala literally means strength or power. So Prabhupada translates it, to render possible that which is impossible. Smriti, to find one's proper duty. Very interesting translation. Because smriti, of course, literally means memory. Uh, and Smriti also refers to the Smriti scriptures, Shruti and Smriti, which talk to us about what our duty is. So anyway, it's interesting that here Prabhupada translates Smriti as to find one's proper duty. Uh, clearly, I mean, there are other translations, but that's a very interesting one. Swatantriyam, which means independence, literally from the word Swatantra, which means by one's own means. So Swatantriya means one who lives by his own means, he, uh, his or her own means, independent, autonomous. Another good translation would be autonomous. Koshalam, dexterity in all activities. Kanti, beauty, diarium, freedom from disturbance. So diarium from the word dira. Dira means like a steady, sober, or a decent person, and then dire young from the word dira, which Prabhupada translates as freedom from disturbance, mardavam, kind-heartedness. It also means gentleness or softness, kind-heartedness, eva. Thus, also pragalbhyam, ingenuity, prashraya, gentility. Also, prashraya can mean humility. It can mean uh, being submitting to those who are actually one's superiors, prashraya. Shilam, mannerliness. These are very interesting translations. Shilam often literally means uh, be conduct, good conduct. So Prabhupada says mannerliness. Sahak, determination. Ojak, perfect knowledge. That's a very interesting translation. Ojak, perfect knowledge. I mean, I think it's... Uh, it's, it's sort of an interesting way to go deeper into Prabhupada's thinking, especially when he translates words in somewhat non-literal ways, uh, to see, see where he's getting these ideas. So ojaha means literally bodily strength, vigor, energy, ability, power, 
vitality. Uh, and of course, it can also mean light, splendor. So it has you know, some derivative meaning. So Prabhupada translates this word, uh, ojak, as perfect knowledge, which is, uh, anyway, not exactly sure was on that. So balam, uh, proper execution, also means, of course, strength, bhaga, object of enjoyment, gambirium, joyfulness, styrium, immovability. So stira means steady. So styrium from the word stira means like steadiness, probably translates immovability. Astikyam, faithfulness, from the word asti, he exists or she exists. So the the if you just say like do you believe in God and someone says yes I believe in God in Sanskrit that's called astikya from the word asti he exists so astikyam kirti which is another form of the word kirtana fame mana worthy of being worshipped mana uh, can mean respect or uh, like Lord Chaitanya said amanina mana dena so it can mean prestige or literally from, from the from the root man to think. So when one is highly thought of, that's mana. Prabhupada translates it here, worthy of being worshipped. Anahankriti, uh, pridelessness. Ahankara, of course, means false ego. It means like I am the doer, ahankara. And then kriti is just another form of, of the word kara from the same root. So ahang means I. So ahankara or ahankriti. It's basically the same word. And then this is the negative unahankriti, which means no false ego. Prabhupada translates this pridelessness, ete all these, cha anye, and also many others, anye cha, bhagavan, nitya, jatra, mahaguna, pratya, mahatang, ichadvi, so naviyanti smakarichad. So, Let's look at these verses, sort of elaborate here. So, eight, so the word Bhagavan here in the second to last verse, this is verse 29, uh, is the vocative form. In other words, the earth is addressing Dharma as my Lord. So Bhagavan, as opposed to Bhagavan, Bhagavan is when you're directly talking to the person. So these and others, my Lord, wherever these great qualities are always present. Uh, uh, they are to be sought after. By those who seek, they are to be, in other words, they are to be sought after by those who desire greatness. Naviyanti, Smakarcha, they're never separated from these qualities. So, Tena, Gunapatrena, by that or by him, who is Gunapatrena, Gunapatra, like the receptacle of all good qualities, Srinivasena, by Srinivasa, Krishna. Now we're talking about Krishna, who is Nivasa. Nivasa means an abode or dwelling or residence. So Krishna is Sri Nivasa. He's the abode of the goddess of fortune or the abode of all beauty and all glory. Also, uh, so the word Nivasa can mean a residence or abode. Also, it can you can simply use the word Vasa. So you get Sri Vasa. That's the word. So the word Sri Vasa and Sri Nivasa 
basically the same idea. Krishna, the abode of all the goddess of fortune, all beauty, all fortune. So Sampratam now lately, so Chami Rahitang Lokam. So I lament, I grieve for Lokam, the world which is Rahitam, now devoid of Krishna, Srinivasa, who's the who's the receptacle of all good qualities. And now the world is being looked at, literally, sort of, sort of, uh, how would you say it in English? Is being observed by, or is being sort of plotted against by the sinner Kali. So the world is now bereft of Lord Krishna, the receptacle of all good qualities, the abode of all beauty, the goddess of fortune, now bereft of Krishna, and it is being gazed at. It is being uh, plotted, pl plotted against by evil Kali. So that word ikshita, seen or observed, is an interesting word because that's kind of like the climax of the verse. So the word ikshita in Sanskrit is translated as seen, beheld, regarded. So it's like, you know, Kali now has the earth in its sights. Kali is now looking at the earth, planning to how it's going to attack the earth. That earth which is now bereft of Krishna, who, who brought all good fortune to this world. So um, going back to this verse now, um, you have all these good qualities So the first, the first three verses, namely 1, 16, 26 through 28, if you're interested in how this works, is just a list of all these great qualities. And then in verse uh, 29, it said, Ete these and others are always, these great qualities are always present uh, in the Lord and are never separated from him. So let's read how, so Prabhupada translates it, in him reside, and then you get a list of uh, 40 good qualities which are eternally present, never to be separated from him. That personality of Godhead, the reservoir of all goodness and beauty, Lord Sri Krishna has now closed his transcendental pastimes on the face of the earth. In his absence, the age of Kali has spread its influence everywhere, so I'm sorry to see this condition of existence. I mean, if you think today, it's a cliche nowadays to say the world is really just going to hell economically, politically, in terms of security, in terms of human relations. I mean, so many levels where every people are just sort of slaves to their digital devices, human relationships. I mean, it's hard to find a person that doesn't think the world is really much worse than it was. And... Uh, so in that sense, of course, when Krishna leaves, it's even a greater difference. But today, especially, you know, it's funny because even Prabhupada used to say sometimes that there, I remember one time we were driving back from the Los Angeles airport to the temple, and it was a very, very foggy day. I mean, you could hardly see your hand in front of you. And so we were driving back in the car. It's actually a limousine they'd rented for Prabhupada. Mm -hmm. And so... Prabhupada was amazed that the plane had been able to land in such thick fog. 
And so he he asked the devotees, how could the plane land in these conditions? And so one devotee said, well, they have radar. And Prabhupada Murray just smiled and said, in this material world, there's no happiness. But if there's a little happiness, it's in America. So, I mean, even if you look back with all the problems back then with the country being convulsed by you know, the anti-Vietnam movement and civil rights, there were so many social struggles and there was the Cold War. But there's a sense in which nowadays that, um, yeah, anyway, I won't have to, I don't have to tell you what the world's like nowadays. So we can identify with this. That somehow, just like Prabhupada was here, and then Prabhupada, of course, he, he, he left this world, went back to Krishna, still present spiritually. But so we can we can identify with this. We can feel what the earth is feeling, uh, given the conditions that we are experiencing right now. So moments like this, the situation we find ourselves in. It's a very good opportunity to surrender to Krishna and achieve the real goal of our life, which is Krishna consciousness. And so I also lament for myself. Anushochami, I'm also lamenting for myself. And I lament for you, who are the best of the Amaras, uh, the best of the uh, we call it demigods or amara. Mara, of course, is a word for death, like English mortal, Sanskrit mrityu, and so on. So amara, the immortal, you the best of the chamara, chamarotamam, uh, the best of immortals, dharma. Uh, and I, I lament for myself and I lament for you. And Devan, I lament for the devas. Bijan, the forefathers, Rashin, the sages, the sadhun, all the decent people and devotees, Sarvan, Varnang, Tashraman, I lament for all Varnas and all ashrams. So this is kind of a, a real Vedic way of saying for you know everyone in society. I lament for all the Varnas and Ashrams, because that, that's everybody. So um then we have these uh, two very long verses. They're very poetic. So the earth is, these are very poetic verses. Brahmadiyo, Bahuti, Tang, Jadapanga, Moksha. So anyway, maybe we'll do those next time because those are very elaborate verses. Um, here we are in this situation where Kali Yuga is definitely advancing. The world is becoming more and more um, artificial. It's funny because one, uh, I've noticed one aspect of modern society, which you could say it's trivial or it's whatever, it's a small thing, but I think it, it, it says a lot. And that is, it has now become popular for, of course, men and women, especially younger men and women, to dye their hair all kinds of uh, colors, you know, like neon blue or green or... And and what's interesting is, of course, I mean, you know, obviously in one sense, it's not my business what people want to do with their hair. So I'm, I'm but I, I am observing 
uh, it's you can do a little cultural anthropology here. I remember that back in the late 60s, early 70s, it, it was considered uh, people really appreciated natural, natural things. There was a certain respect for nature. There was a certain idea that by getting closer to nature, um, you were somehow getting closer to what was good or what was true or what was beautiful or valuable by getting close to nature. And now it's the opposite. It's like they're, because obviously if someone, you know, dyes their hair some, you know, bright red color, I mean, not even like, you know, the red, you know, there is such a thing as red hair. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about some really like neon color or blue or green. What I'm seeing is that natural to somehow be natural, just the way God made you or the way nature made you, that's no longer a value for, for a lot of these people. And, and what I suspect is not just that they're, you know, I'm not saying they're bad people, but that they actually have become so separated from nature, they don't even have that category in their head. Because if you think about it, I mean, when I was young, uh, like, let's say when I was a kid, like, you know, just growing up, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, I remember that just like now, you know, there's so much political correctness. So if there's an advertisement or a textbook, it has to show someone, you know, people from all the different races and different genders and so on. And so when I was young, the version of that was that you had to show people living in cities and people living on farms. It was still, even back in the 50s, I remember very clearly that, let's say I was reading a little, like a children's book in school or just the book my mother got me, and it would show a typical American family living in town, but they would also show a family living on a farm because although most people lived in cities when I was young, still farm life, it wasn't too many years before that a lot of Americans lived on farms. And I mean, all, over, all around the world. So, um, I mean, even when I remember when I was nine years old in school, we, had, we saw educational films and took tests on agriculture, like how you plant different vegetables. And we even had a vegetable garden in my kindergarten. We actually had a vegetable garden. My mother taught me to plant vegetables. So there was much more life was much more in contact with nature. You know, the milk truck would come around in the morning and bring you literally milk fresh from the cows, you know, in a glass bottle and they put it on your front porch. So, so people, cities weren't as big. So for almost everybody in the country, at least in America, was much closer to the country. If you got in your car and you drove, in, you know, in a few minutes, you could be in the country. So people had much more contact with nature. And in the, in the 60s and early 70s, there was this back to nature movement. There's, there's not a bad, there's an environmental movement. But if you look at the young people, uh, it's not about the natural look. The natural look is not in. You don't take your body the way it is and just say, okay, this is my natural body. You've got to do all kinds of things to it, things which are artificial. 
So, um, so the world is really plus even human contact. I mean, I mean, there was a time when if you wanted to talk to somebody, you had to actually go talk to them. People didn't have digital communication, which now just you know, all of our lives, it's just totally, uh, you could say it's, it's just constantly present in our lives. We hardly go five minutes during the day without, you know, someone sending us some message by, uh, on some social media platform. And so there was a time when, and this makes a huge difference neurologically, neurologically, there was a time when most human contact was direct human contact or, you know, people write letters very thoughtfully. I mean, writing a letter was something you would stop everything and you have to think about it. And it was a very meaningful experience. When you got a letter, it was a very big deal. You got a letter and, you know, letters were very powerful, important things. It's not that, you know, like I send, you know, hundreds of text messages every day. I mean, everything was like that. So human contact was more natural. Human beings in many ways were much more in contact with the natural world. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, I won't go into all this, but so nowadays we're dealing with a human population that is, to use the old 60s word, uh, and even before then, alienated, alienated. And so as far as that used to be a very popular word, people are more alienated than ever, but they're so alienated, they don't even use the word anymore. So alienated in the dictionary means... Uh, Experiencing or inducing feelings of isolation or estrangement. Uh, it means you're sort of like separated from your natural condition to be alienated. And the dictionary gives the example, an alienated 22-year-old, and, and they put in brackets, the need for human connection in this ever more alienated world. The verb alienate, this was, this was a very hot word in you know back in the 60s to alienate is to cause someone to feel isolated or estranged uh so estranged means uh no longer close or affectionate to someone so there's a sense in which people feel separated from the world people feel separated from the world or not really part of things not really part of a loving satisfying community and of course we have you know we have devotional communities some of them are very satisfying some of them are not as we know i mean there are Hare christian communities where you do not feel like you know i'm loved here and everyone cares about me and this is my family i mean there are some communities that are like that and obviously some that are very much not like that but so anyway um the general point I'm making is that we live in a very difficult time. We can talk about alienation. We can talk about all the uh, harmful psychological effects of just the way the world is, the separation from nature. And it's very interesting because you get all these, um, like take a place like New York City, which of course is, a, you know, in many ways, a great preaching field, and many nice devotees there. But New York is the media that comes from New York like the New York Times, it's kind of like this constant source of 
uh, impiety, the name of piety, sort of artificial, unnatural, social engineering ideas, political correctness, where, uh, because the more people live in an environment, say if you live in a big city, I don't want to just bash New York, but if you live in a big city where you have very little contact with nature, like maybe someone in, 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 in Manhattan, you know, maybe in, in the window of their little apartment, they put a plant or something, and that's like, that's nature. I mean, they're trying to rectify, they're trying to build more of what they call urban parks, but I mean, when you live in an urban environment, you really believe you become conditioned to think reality is man-made. And therefore, you can just do social engineering. You can just decide what your ideology is, the way you think society should be. Never mind nature. There is no nature. Any human behavior that doesn't agree with your ideology is just some deviation from your ideology. And we can social engineer and we can change people and make them think this way and make them think that way. And Interesting, communism, Marxism tended to be very industrial. I mean, they weren't into, they weren't nature lovers. They were, they were really into industry. Marx was into industry. And so, I mean, we could trace this back as far as you want to the industrial revolution or whatever and, and how the world has changed. But the conclusion is we live in a very difficult time. So how do we explain to people that ultimately God is a nature lover? I mean, the Bhagavatam, they were nature lovers. You can see this very clearly because if you read the Bhagavatam or the Mahabharata, especially descriptions of the ashrams of sages, they love natural beauty. The Bhagavatam has many descriptions of natural beauty in Vrindavan and outside Vrindavan. For example, typically Brahmana communities uh, or sages in the forest, they'd live in places, of course, always in the bank of a river. I mean, until the Industrial Revolution, every big city was on a river. Every important place was on a river for trade, for transportation, for bathing, for water supply. But they would live on these beautiful rivers, often, often where the river would make a bend. There would be a lake, there were waterfalls. They really appreciated waterfalls, fruit trees, flower trees. So in the Bhagavatam, you find that the Vaishnavas were nature lovers. And because they really, because you obviously you, you get close to God when you're in nature. So uh, we're living in a very strange time. Just to wrap this up, we're living in a very strange time in which you know there's all these theories about different small groups of people that control the world, and uh, you know for people who don't substitute conspiracy theories for actual thinking. Uh, it seems to me the real reality is the world's out of control. The world is out of control. For example, Hollywood can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on movies, and no one—and a lot of times no one likes the movie, and they lose a fortune. So you can't just you can't advertise and 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 manipulate people. It's not that it, it's a very I think unrealistic and unscientific view of human nature that you can just control people. So make them like this movie, make them like this food, make them like that computer. I mean, in the world of capitalism, half the products or more, the new products fail. And that's after all kinds of marketing studies. So it's not that human beings can be manipulated like machines. And, and I mean, so marketing, the whole principle of marketing is that you find out what people want and then give it to them. It's not that you make them want something. 
So, so all these ideas, there's a few people who are manipulating everyone. It, it's based on a completely unrealistic, unscientific view of human psychology and sociology. So my conclusion is that the world is out of control. The real fact is the world is out of control. And it's just, and so people naturally who want to make money just pandered to the material desires of the population, try to, you know, get them to entangle themselves in more and more sense gratification. So it's, it's a very strange and degraded planet that we're living on right now. And um, <clears throat> we just have to do our best to present Krishna conscious. we, consciousness. We should be Krishna conscious ourselves. It's becoming easier and easier, I think, to become detached in this world because it's so ugly and it's so, um, it's so crazy that, you know, becoming attached to the world nowadays, it's like, really? You're attached to this world? So we should cultivate detachment and uh, just do our best to help others become Krishna conscious. Krishna does have a plan and we should offer ourselves to Krishna and become part of his plan. So thank you. Um, let's see. Now I think I'll end here and see if there are any questions. Uh, thank you for your comments see again if you have a question you've got to put a bunch of question marks so i can see it them as i scroll through Dagapalana, why did krishna leave his beloved parts and parcels at the mercy of kali well actually he didn't leave them at the mercy of kali because the conclusion of this conversation is going to be that even though Krishna superficially left the world, he still left all kinds of spiritual resources like the Bhagavatam uh, by which we can keep our contact with Krishna and have a progressive life. So have the four vows we make in initiation ceremony always been a part of Vaishnavism or just recently introduced due to the reality of this age? Um, Basically, these were always considered to be principles that were followed to be followed by civilized people. I mean, obviously, a lot of people in India and elsewhere didn't follow these principles. But saintly persons and Vaishnavas, uh, serious Vaishnavas, did follow them. Uh, uh, okay, let's see, Stephen McNamara. Do you think we should prioritize certain aspects of preaching or is diversity the way to go? Simply living, high thinking, for example, following. I would say just see what works. I mean, as if we are serious preachers, we should um, just see what works. You know, how can we get through to people? I started Krishna West where we are reaching a lot of people, but if someone has a better idea, great. It's... Um, yeah, we just have to be practical and, and see how we can actually attract people to Krishna consciousness. So, uh, thank you all. We have some devotees listening from Mexico there. So, thank you all very much. I don't see any other questions. And uh, have a great week. Hare Krishna.